Okay, really lucky today to be sponsored by not only a friend, Mark uh, Scratchard, but he uh, he owns a really great business called MAS Designs in Geisley. I've got Mark to come along today, tell us a little bit about it. Mark, keen cyclist. <laughs> yes, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tell us a little bit about MAS, because you've always been involved in cycling. Always. Yes, yeah, we have. So basically, set up Mass Design 20 years ago this year in wow. April. And probably for a good 10 years, we've been supporting local cycling. Tom Peacock's team and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, Tom Peacock's team. I'm now involved with the Fensham House Mass Design junior team. She's got some good riders. And previous to that, the PH Mass with uh, Neil Hendry and Paul Mills. Yeah. So, yeah, been a big sort of uh, supporter of uh, local cycling. Basically, we, we've helped out with the um, the cycle races. Yeah. Ilka cycle races, we sponsor all the kids' events, and we've also we've got involved with the Otley Cycling Club in a big, big way as well this year. So, and it's it's really nice that you're helping out with this as well now. So, MAS Designs. Anyone who's listening, if you had to kind of give us a brief synopsis, that's my word of the day. How would you kind of sum it up if you could? Yeah. So, Mass Design is basically an architectural practice based in Geisley, North Leeds. Yep. And we cover a varied sort of uh, area work from sort of residential, commercial, new build. That's straight from the domestic market to new build house, commercial venture. So, it's quite varied. Work locally, nationally, on, as I say, a variety of projects uh, from the sort of small, large scale. Cover everything. And we're sort of big, as I say, we're big sort of. North Leeds. Fantastic. If they want to find out more, just go on Google, type in MAS Designs. There's an Instagram page, which I'll be linked to. But um, yeah, architecture, fantastic. Thank you ever so much. It's um, We'll point people in that direction. Much appreciated. No, don't worry about it. Thank you very, very, very much. Thanks, Tom. Hello. Welcome. This is Series 3, Episode 5 of the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. I'm a little bit starstruck today because I'm joined by someone who doesn't need any introduction, really. Absolute fucking massive time hitter it's tyler hamilton hi tyler hey tom how's it going i need you to say two things sure missoula montana yeah and paniagua yeah 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 missoula montana paniagua <sighs> um sorry that's just my just it's just your voice your voice is incredible thanks for making this happen today well tom thanks for the opportunity to be on i appreciate you reaching out to me and chatting with you a little bit on whatsapp and this is great to finally meet you or see you over the screen i was actually gonna try and come out and see you i kind of almost made it work but these video calls were all right to be fair i wasn't a fan of them to begin with but it's a bit it's a bit easier than getting a flight it is a little bit easier right yeah someday tom someday come to missoula we'll ride bikes and it'll be great I'm going to America in September. We're going to uh, LA, California, Vegas, Flagstaff. Nice. I'm going to go up to Denver for three days. So it's not a million miles from you, but... Yeah, let me know. You know, the firm I work for is in uh, in Boulder, Colorado. Is it? The Black Swift Group. Yeah, so I get down there once in a while. So let me know where, when you're there. That's my question. What are you doing these days? Yeah, you know, I work for a money manager. They were based in Denver. They just moved beginning of the year to Boulder, just up the road where I went to uh, college at the University of Colorado. So yeah, you know, I'm on the like business development team, deal with investor relations. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Kind of learned a new business. I studied economics back in college, but really put everything to the wayside when I, you know, got into cycling. And yeah, spent some years after my career ended just figuring out what I was doing with my life, you know, did some public speaking, did some work in real estate. And yeah, you got an opportunity about three years ago, the chief investment officer of Black Swift Group, Greg Casals, reached out to me and thought it'd be 
do a really good job at on the investor relations side of things. And yeah, I thought he was crazy, but here I am today. And it's been a lot of fun. Certainly a steep learning curve, but I've I've really enjoyed it, you know, helping people in a different kind of way. Yeah, who's gonna say no to you on the phone this year? Oh, oh. <laughs> I got a lot of work to do, but it's I've I've enjoyed the opportunity. Do you feel like your mentality does help a little bit at work? Or are you is it completely different? Are you not as motivated now? Are you not as aggressive now? Or do you see that coming out in traits at work? I'd definitely say I'm less aggressive now, for sure. I mean, sales is different. Sales is certainly a lot different. My dad's really good at it. I wouldn't say I'm great at it, but I'm, I'm learning. But yeah, I mean, just you got to be honest with everyone and yeah, speak the truth and take your time, you know, networking with people. And yeah, some are the right fit, others aren't. And you can't, you can't take it personally and just, there is a lot of rejection in this business for sure, for sure. But it's nice to, you know, the people that, you know, I do bring in, it's the, everyone I've brought in has been super happy that, you know, the firm does an amazing job and yeah, that's been fun. It certainly makes me look good. So getting into it from a young age, Hamilton's don't quit. That's what made you a great cyclist. And I think you've got Scottish descent I yeah. was born in Scotland. Is that something you, you know, you know, you just mentioned your dad, I've listened to your book twice, your riding style maybe not necessarily the most gifted, talented, I would, and I hope that yeah. doesn't come across as... No, no, 100%, 100%. I started late. I identify with, um, you, I think you got fourth or six in a prologue at Tour de Pont, and you, would you just say that not giving up is in your DNA? Yeah, 100%. I think, I don't know, I think I was kind of born with it. My family's all, none of them are quitters. You know, my grandparents were all fighters. My grandfather on my father's side, yeah, my dad's dad, he, I think, went bankrupt three different times and, you know, lost businesses, but kept fighting and, and then went on to just be super successful. And yeah, I mean, life is hard, right? I mean, we all know that. Like, you get thrown curveballs all the time, but you got to keep getting up every day, dusting yourself up and setting a goal for that day, right? I mean, you have a new opportunity every day, just waking up and going for it. So yeah, I'm, I'm not a quitter. I think that was my biggest asset as a bike racer. Like, I think there were plenty of riders stronger than me, better than me, more talented than me, but just I never gave up. And so sometimes like I'd be there at the end of a race when, you know, when I felt like I had no business be, even being there, but good things happen when you don't give up. That's so mad you say that. Just as I was on the way here today, just now, I phoned someone up, a cyclist. He used to race pro Conti, so a good level. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And uh, I told him, oh, I'm just about to interview Tyler Hamilton, and he's a massive fan of yours. And he was in tears. He was crying because he still hasn't found his kind of his way in life after cycling. It's a hard transition for sure. Where do we even begin with that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we can start wherever. I struggled with it for a long time. And not to say that I figured it all out. I'll always be learning, always be growing. Um, I definitely feel a lot more like secure today than I did probably, you know, five, six years ago, for sure. There was a lot of unknown then. And making that transition from, you know, being a pro cyclist to the real world is difficult, difficult, difficult. You're in such a bubble when you're cycling. It's yeah. such a, yeah. you know, I gave five, six years of, I was completely obsessed, completely obsessed, you know, I've kind of learned how I've got an addictive personality and I am addicted to certain things which aren't good for me and stuff. But, you know, in the book, you said racing is not a healthy sport and I don't want to damn cycling here because obviously we love it and it's brought us so much happiness. But, you know, you've got kids. Would you want them to be a professional cyclist? Hey, whatever they want to do, whatever they want to do, I'll support them. But it's a, certainly a hard, hard sport. I don't know. Somebody asked me recently, would I do it all over again? I don't know if I would. It's just hard. I mean, maybe I'd try something totally different and not go down that path. But it's beautiful. It's such a beautiful sport. I was talking to somebody yesterday about, you know, there were some years when I took some time away from cycling and really didn't. I followed it from, you know, 
30,000 feet away kind of thing. But now I really enjoy it. I don't watch all the races, but, you know, I'll watch the tour this summer um, in July, you know, try to catch this, what I can on t television. And, you know, it's great these days. There, there's so much content out there, you know. If you don't have time to watch the race, you can watch the 20-minute recap or you can watch the five-minute recap. Or you can go and listen to a podcast. Lance Armstrong's podcast, The Move. Yeah, maybe Lance's or someone's podcast, you know, that gives you a download on, on what happened in that, in that race. And I don't know. There just seems like so much more content out there to, to see what's going on in the race versus, you know, when I was racing in the Tour de France, and, you know, 20 years ago, I think it was a lot different. Yeah. So I feel like as a cycling fan, I'm a fan of the sport. I love it. I love watching all the different characters, men and women. The last couple of years, I've really just gotten back into it. I turned my back to it a little bit. I feel like I needed some space from it. But yeah, I mean, I realized that I, it's just an amazing sport. It's so much fun to watch. And just in, and when you understand, I mean, I got to live it and breathe it for a long time. So I, I feel like I, I do pretty understand it pretty well. So much information to, to, to take in and it's fun to follow it from far away. Did it take you a while to start loving and watching cycling again because i imagine it took me a while it took me a little while i kind of didn't like it for a while i think i went through all the different emotions you know i didn't certainly didn't ride my bike for a long time how long i don't know five years with the exception of a charity event here and there i couldn't say no to that but i, I, did, I didn't really go out all the bikes that i had collected dust and yeah i didn't do much i didn't do much but i did reflect a lot i think i did grow a lot as a person and i you know i learned a lot i got to Spent a lot of time on me, I guess, you know. But yeah, it's a great sport. I'm a little bit ashamed to say I turned my back to it, but maybe it was the right thing at that time to do. But you'll probably be all or nothing, a bit like me. And if you're not doing 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week on a bike, like is is six or seven hours a week on a bike going to satisfy Tyler Hamilton? I don't know. It takes a while to kind of get to that. Oh, I'd be lucky to get that. Yeah, I mean, I'm like a once a week getting out kind of guy now. And you got to come to terms with that too. Yeah, you've got to come to terms with the fact that... You'll never be even remotely as fit as you used to be for sure yeah that's not my goal anymore my goal is to live a you know long and healthy life and be a good father and stepfather to my kids i wanted to take it back to obviously this kind of like mythic dreamlike years of those days at dupont and then when you sign with postal i think you said thirty thousand dollars or something like that yeah i think that's right yeah my uh, first year as a pro it's my first year pro uh, 1995 Talk us through from the early years at Postal, because you were there, was it five years, six years? Seven years. Some highs, some lows, you know, the training with like Lance moving to Nice, all those things. Like, can you pinpoint any like amazing moments back then or? Oh yeah, tons, tons. I mean, starting out in 95, it was, it was the organization that ran the Postal team, but it was under a different title sponsor in 95. It was called uh, Montgomery Securities and Bell Helmets. The, the, those were the sponsors. By 96, we changed title sponsors to the US Postal Service, so. It was that same organization, just different sponsors. So yeah, 95 was yeah my first year as a pro riding on this team, Montgomery Bell. And yeah, we were like a domestic team, raced basically like a double A baseball team. We raced primarily in the US, maybe 20 to 25% in Europe. So we just, you know, fly over the pond and, you know, stay in a low budget hotel and try to get in as many races as we could in whatever, two, three weeks. So we did that in 95 and also in 96. In 96, we brought on a guy by the name of Andy Hampston, who's in the last year of his uh, pro career. So that was pretty awesome for me. I was really young and green and got to learn and really just, uh, I, we roomed together a lot. So I'd just ask him a million questions. I think mean, he probably got a lot really annoyed with me, but you know, that was a lot of fun. In uh, 96, we got to do some bigger races. We got, we got into the tour of Switzerland, which was a big 
big deal for you know a double a baseball team you know small green team coming from the states and uh but then it was 97 that we really took a step up and brought on like you know a european staff european riders and uh and that's you know that was the first year we rode in the tour de france but you still did e3 harlebecker in in 96 <laughs> yeah nice did we really okay yeah yeah i remember some of those yeah i can't remember every race we did but yeah, we got into some big races. I remember in 96, uh, I won a race over there called the Teleflex Tour. I think that was 95 or 96. Yeah, you got fourth at a town trial in uh, Toro Poland. Like, that's a massive result back like at that age. Sure, yeah. You know, that was before the, you know, the things went dark. And, but that was before the doping got jumped in, I guess. So did you realize, like, how serious were you then? Were you, were you fully obsessed then? In 95, 96, I was, I was serious about it, but I also was like, this is a, just a short little window of my life. And I didn't know if I each year was like, oh, this is great, but I'll probably be back. I, I uh, dropped out of college to pursue this career. I had about a year left of college. And, you know, I just thought, okay, the next year I'll be back in college and I'll finish up with my degree and, and we'll see from there. But I always felt like it was just temporary. 95, temporary, 96, temporary. Even 97, when I rode in my first Tour de France, I was like, this is probably my first and last time doing the Tour de France. And I probably won't even finish the race. And What's that like doing your first, you know, because how old were you then? You must have been, what, 20? Around 25. I kind of had a late start. Let's see, Reese was there, Bjorn Reese, Ulrich. Yeah, Ulrich was on fire. Yeah, Pantani was there. What were those guys like? Yeah, it was, I mean, they were big heroes of mine. I mean, I, I remember getting nervous just trying to, just riding next to them, not even saying anything to them. But I remember in 97, just feeling my first full season racing in Europe and just feeling like really out of place. Like these are all people that, that I read about in the magazines and here I am racing next to them. Felt pretty green and you know, even just simple things like when you get a flat tire, what side of the road do you pull over on? You know what I mean? But it, it was also great too. I, I learned a lot quickly, very fast. So it was a steep learning curve, but I just kind of dove into it. I didn't know, honestly, I didn't know what was right around. The, I didn't know what was around the corner. In 97, I wasn't really thinking about 98 or 99. When you did the Tour de France that year and you, you know, you finished really respectful. You did really, really well. You know, when you saw the likes of Ulrich, Pantani, these guys, were you just like, fuck, they're a different level to me. There's no chance. Was it fast as well? Was the, was the two were ridiculously fast? Were you just like, hang on, this is a step up here. I can't even keep up. Or were you like, nah, I, I think I can do this? I mean, it was brutally hard, brutally hard. I mean, everyone was so strong. Just to get to the front of the peloton was hard, especially as the roads got narrow, you know, for sure. And being pretty green, like navigating your way through the peloton, like, I mean, that's a skill in itself. When you started late and all that, like your bike handling and all that, I had to learn bike handling and all that, like on the fly. So I had some bad moments i had some good moments too you know yeah i mean i had some massive crashes due to my lack of skill but then sometimes like i could you know i could nail a descent i remember chasing paulo salvadelli down the descent i mean he was one of the best descenders in the in the world but you got to figure it out i came to cycling late as well and people used to take the piss out of me because i could never go around corners and like no I, I, i'm not fucking with you S seriously mate i found going around a corner fast scary even I, I, I could never do it. It is scary. It is scary. But you, but over time you get confidence, right? You learn what, what your tires, what you what you can handle, right? But then all of a sudden you do have a crash and your confidence goes to zero and you got to restart over again. But at that level, at the, at the highest level, if you're not descending at least pretty good, you're getting dropped on the descent and, and you're off the back and you're not, you know, I don't care how much talent you have. If you can't descend, you're not going to stay there in Europe. 
at that level. So the tour, you did plenty of tours. I think, how many did you complete in the end? I completed seven. I did eight. Yeah, my last tour, I did not finish. I, I dropped out. I was my. I had a crash maybe a week before, and my my lower back was really bruised, and I couldn't breathe. Once we hit the climbs, I couldn't breathe, so I dropped out. And you talk about in the book, you and you know Lance obviously became. I want to say friends with like Frankie and Andreo, Kevin Livingston. Is that right? Kevin uh, Livingston. Yeah. You guys had a good little training group. You moved out to Nice, and then you know. I don't want to take this down the route of doping so much. You can talk about whatever you want. I feel like um, there was definitely a time when, you know, shit got serious or as you said, shit got dark and you talk about Tyler, you're too, f- oh no, that's Ferrari. Who was the, who was the other guy with the fishing net? Uh, Gilet. Oh yeah. One of the team doctors. Yeah. And he came and he gave you your first red egg. Yeah. Red pill. Yeah. I try and put myself in that position. You know, I never doped. I never needed to. I was just in Britain. I think I took Tramadol twice. And I put myself in that position and I think to myself, honestly, what would I have done? And the honest answer is, I think I would have definitely doped. It's in my nature. I know I would have done. So when you did it and you started seeing the effects, because I wrote down here, right? And I don't know if this is true, but it must be because it was in your book. When you were with Ferrari, this guy who sounds, sounds like some out of James Bond, mate, to be honest. Could be a James Bond character for sure. <laughs> you did the Madone. As, and this was something that I think he tested you guys on. And in 2000, you did it in 36 minutes. And in 60 days time, you did it in 32 minutes. So in 60 days, you were four minutes quicker. You'd lost three and a half kg in weight. And you averaged 390 watts for 32 minutes. <sighs> what was that feeling like? Did you feel fit or did you just feel constantly fucked? A little combination, combination. I mean, you felt the fitness coming along as you're losing weight. I mean, as you you start in the early season, right? You're in January, you're riding up the cold of Madone or whenever it was. You know, you're not fit. You're feeling that the extra weight of winter, the Christmas cookies and all that, packing on the kilograms. And you're just feeling like, you know, a fish out of water, right? And then you start losing the weight. You start, you know, training harder. You start doing specific interval work, all that. And yeah, you just feel yourself coming around. And that was kind of part of it. And what was he like, Ferrari, on the sideline? Yeah, pretty serious, pretty calculated. Definitely like seemed like a mathematician, right? Could you give him a hug? Could you ever give him a fist pump? Okay. But he was pretty real. He was pretty real and honest with you, right? When you weren't riding strong or looking like you hadn't been doing the work to tell you and then that can sometimes motivate you especially when he told you you weren't very fit right yeah because he said you you wouldn't finish liege bashed on the age oh that's right yeah that's right yeah so i made sure to prove him wrong when you would meet up with him and he would come over was it not a bit like oh but i suppose back then he, he wasn't seen as a bad person then people didn't know he was a bad person but were you nervous were you like oh what are people going to think what are people going to say if they see us with this guy yeah, usually it was kind of quiet. You know, there weren't a lot of people around for sure. So, I mean, he I think he had a controversial name back then a little bit. So it was definitely, you weren't going out of your way to, you know, be seen in public with him for sure. We'd usually meet with him on a quiet road, you know, at the bottom of the Col de Madone. At the time, it wasn't a whole lot of cyclists didn't know about it. So, but yeah, we didn't go out of our way to promote that we were working with him. Because Lance Armstrong, he was in charge of Postal. You know, you shared a room with him. Sometimes. He wasn't in charge of Postal, but obviously he had, let's call it a strong hand. Yeah, I I don't know. I I get the feeling like he kind of, you know, whatever he said goes. And I imagine before Ferrari, 
training techniques were a little bit kind of old school. And when this guy came on, it was it was numbers. I think you, you kind of said he made it into chess a little bit. Did he take the fun away from it for you? Or were you not bothered because you were getting better? A little both. You know, those days of just doing long five, six hour rides, you know, long, slow, dis- LSD, we call it long, slow distance. And those, you know, those days were over, you know, once I blinked up with Michaeli, then yeah, it became a lot of interval work and specific stuff that like homework to do. So sometimes it, it felt like just work. Other times you felt really motivated and you felt like, okay, like I did, a, I did my homework today. I mean, I'd say at that time, my cycling career started to take a different kind of feel. A little bit more serious, you know. By then, it was clear what my job was, and that was to to show up in July as fit as possible. And, and my one goal was, was to, you know, get Lance to Paris in, in the yellow jersey. So, and for the team, that was if I could get some results in the spring or fall, great. But the biggest thing for the team was for me to be there in July as an domestic and not riding Paniagua. Not riding Paniagua. No. What was that like? You know, that term you kind of coined up is something I did want to talk to you about. Is it literally we have a term over in the UK? Chalk and cheese. Chalk and cheese? So you eat chalk? No. Oh, good, good. <laughs> no, chalk and cheese is uh, opposites. Oh, got it. So riding Paniagua without dope, the opposite of riding Paniagua is fly. You're doing really, really well. Sure. So the whole build up to the tour, you guys were like celebrities. You've got Nike, US Postal. You must have so much kind of attention around you. Well, which tour? Which tour? The first tour, 99, that Lance won. I wouldn't say we were, we were kind of the bad news bears then, really. Well, yeah, you, and you, like little UV campers, you didn't have the big kind of flashy. Sure, um, sure. But the year, by the year 2000, I think we had a bus. By the year 2001, and probably a better bus. Who knows? But the first year, 99 tour, yeah, we were still kind of bad news bears. Although that was our third tour. That was Lance's first tour trying to win on gc and i think we yeah, we were still kind of the bad news bears yeah but as the tour went on yeah i guess we gained some attention that was with uh when moto man was famously kind of coined the guy who yeah dropping off tell us about that because um you got him a rolex at the end so he must have done a good job but what was that you know what was this guy like how would you meet him yeah it's a, a bike shop owner a friend of lance's and we were worried about you know after the festina affair in 98 you know we were worried about you know, more of the same happening in, in 99. This was an easy way to, to get in, to get EPO with a relatively low risk, I guess. So he'd kind of come in, drop it off to a staff member. This guy, Philippe, would come in on his motorcycle, have EPO, drop it off to a staff member, and the staff member would get it to the riders who needed it. And what was he like, Philippe? Was he was he always nervous when he was dropping it off? Could you tell it was putting him through? I, you know, I never, I never saw him during the tour. I never saw him once. So he never dropped it off to me. You know, so it was always it was very secret, very secret. He dropped it off to a staff member in the middle of nowhere, maybe at a restaurant, maybe at a secret spot. It would be far away from us, the riders, for sure. And then the delivery would be made, but the team wouldn't have to carry it with them through the race. When you had a hematocrit of like 50% in the tour. I suppose for everyone listening at the moment, like the payoff is, you know, you're flying, you can win the Criterium de Dauphiné, you can ride front up whatever, you know, Alpe d'Huez and stuff. The things I want to ask you, uh, Tyler, is one, yeah, it's a great feeling. I would like to know what it actually feels like compared to riding clean. And the other feeling is how much anxiety do you have? over it because i think you said something like jan ulrich had a cortisone face or something after some time trial or whatever i can't remember but can you kind of like weigh up what it was like in a nutshell 
it's hard to weigh it up in a nutshell, but yeah, you know, I never felt comfortable with, with the doping side of things. I did feel like I had constant anxiety about it. It would kind of rear its ugly head typically in the middle. If I mean, you always would push it in the back of your head as when you start to stress about it during the day, but you know, at night, sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night and uh, yeah, just think about it and stare at the ceiling and, and think about like what I was doing was wrong. And I also just thinking about like getting caught, like, you know, what that would be like, because that was my biggest, biggest fear. And in terms of the, you know, the doping, yeah, you felt the effects like slowly over time. It wasn't like I started out in the spring of 97, you know, you know, on the full program, but it was just, I guess I dipped my toe into it. And it was just little by little. And over the years, you know, the red testosterone pill led to EPO injections, which boosts your red blood cell count. And then in the year 2000, I did a a transfusion for the first time. That was, you know, that's pretty extreme. But you try to stay kind of cool in the pocket, right? You're like, this is crazy. This is crazy. This is crazy. But this is part of the sport. This is, this is my world now. And this is what I got to have to do to, to survive. And then you just chalked it up like, okay, I know a lot of the other riders are doing the same thing. So this is what kind of what I have to do. I know that wasn't the right way to think, but that kind of helps alleviate some anxiety for sure. Yeah, I get it. I'd have been the same. You know, for the average person who hasn't doped and for the average person who doesn't maybe know what being on it's like, I kind of wanted to understand every now and then in cycling when you're racing and let's say you win a race, if you're fortunate enough to win, most people don't win because it's so hard. Some people don't even get podiums. Yeah. You're very fortunate if you do. Every now and then, me and my mates would say, we're on a float day where everything just feels mint. <laughs> you don't have to worry. Your legs aren't hurting. Everything's just clicking and you're floating. Yeah, it feels like you don't have a chain, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's some races where you check your bloody tires and, oh, there's my brakes rubbing or whatever. Yeah, all the time. All the time. <laughs> That's what it feels like today. So I suppose when you're doing, when you got a hematocrit at 50, I can't remember, I had pneumonia once and my hematocrit went right down. And When you wake up in the morning, was it every day you just think, no, I'm all right today? I'm actually okay. Was it like that with EPO and all these things you take? And when you got a micro at 50, is the repeatability to keep going? Do you, do you still feel fresh? Oh yeah. You definitely recover way faster. You know, you do a big day, six hours, six and a half hours in the mountains, like training really hard, motor, you know, intervals, motor pacing. Yeah. And the next day you feel a little bit more recovered than normal. I mean, you can train harder on all that stuff. Well, 100%. A lot of people say that makes, that's the difference maker. Because you show up to the race, you know, quote unquote, clean because it's out of your system. The people in the right positions have told you what to do, when to do it and how to do it. So, you know, you listen to those orders and, or those instructions and, uh, hey, you can show up to the race more or less with a clear head. But you've been training extremely hard and the work's been done and you go to battle. I was looking at the CSC video and I was going to get on to 2003, which I think was your... I want to say 2003, was that your best? That was, I think that was my best year. I'm probably on paper, you know, had a good, interesting tour. But in 2000 and 2001, no, sorry, 2001, 2002, you kind of, I don't want to say dipped because that's, you still want to stage the Giro and stuff. In 2002, I got second in the Giro. Maybe I'd say 2001, there was a dip for sure. My last year on Postal. Why is that? Was it, you working for Lance? Yeah, working for Lance. Yeah, I I had some crashes. Probably wasn't the happiest. That was probably one of my least fun seasons, 2001. Why is that? What? Just different reasons. I think it was starting to become apparent that my time on Postal was coming to an end or, you know, it was maybe time to start looking elsewhere. So yeah, and that's what I did. So I went to CSE in 2002, 2003. Do you know what? I completely related with what you said in the book. You know, we are all, all cyclists are insecure. All cyclists are insecure. I can see you nodding your head. People can't see it. Deep down, we don't believe in ourselves. 
but then in that flip switch, we really do. It's kind of, you know, you can't, it's, it's hard to explain, isn't it? Sure. But it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, deep down, yeah, we all have it, right? Insecurities, right? Deep down, yeah, we don't believe, yeah, we're fit enough. But then, yeah, you do click switch, click that switch and, uh, yeah. I feel like with Lance, were you not only physical support in the domestic sense of things, but were you an emotional crutch for him as well in time to build him up and things like that? I mean, I felt like I was. I mean, you can ask him, but I mean, I felt like I was. I was there for him, you know, physically as a domestique, as a, you know, support rider. Yeah, I was there emotionally as a friend and someone to tell him how, you know, strong he's riding, stay relaxed, he's on track, on track, on track. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, there was a lot of like anxiety in, in the springtime leading up to the tour, that, you know, whether he was on track. And I remember him stressing about that a lot. And sometimes that stress would, you know, filter down to his teammates, you know. But that, you know, I think that's a normal stress. Like his season was all about the tour. He had to be sharp and ready to go. And when you have guys like Pantani and Jan Ulrich, you know, banging on the door, you better be ready. I'm sure he lost sleep over those two. You talk about these legends and I can't imagine what it'd been like to, because there's a famous photo of Jan Ulrich's legs. I'm like, fuck, I'd have just given up just looking at the guy on the start line. Yeah, me, me too, me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was a, an incredible rider. I mean, he was that's certainly one of my favorite riders. He's a really good person, down to earth guy, big heart, huge heart, you know, huge engine, but you know, even a bigger heart for sure. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think about him often. He's, he's gone, he's at a tough road for sure. And, but yeah, I send him positive thoughts all the time. So I suppose we have to really talk about, you know, I wanted to talk about Liège 2003. I watched it last night. What a fucking win. And, um, when you attack, Lance still tries to bring you back. And Ivan Mayo, you know, tries to bring you back at the end in your solo. And, you know, for an American twinly age, La Doyenne is just phenomenal. That must have been such a moment for you. And then you, on the back of that, oh, you know, the 2003 tour, everyone's like messaging me saying, can you talk to us about that? Because I've seen the video and behind Reese, the hotels, the collarbone, the winning on stage, 16... Do you look back at that now and that 2003 and just be like, fuck, that was phenomenal? I mean, not, I'm not really anymore. No, no. I mean, you know, after that season, for sure. Well, I can look back now and say, yeah, that was probably on paper my, one of my best seasons. And yeah, things were clicking for sure. Yeah, got the win there in Liège. And then I think we had one day off and we started the Tour of Romandy and I won that also. And then, you know, the UCI rankings came out like a few weeks later and there I was at the top of the very top of the list, which is, you know, almost unbelievable, really. At least for one little period, I was ranked the number one rider in the world, at least on points, you know, and that wasn't my style. I wasn't a big, you know, I didn't get a ton of points, but but all of a sudden, you know, I won a World Cup, you know, a monument, and then the Tour of Romandy, and, and boom, you know, so that, that was a good start to the 03 season. And then, yeah, I went into the Tour after Romandy, kind of shut it down, took a break, and then started training for the Tour, and then. I felt like that was my year. That was my year to like to try to win. I felt like I had the form and had the team behind me, had the right mentality, had the right support. And, you know, things didn't go well. The first we had a prologue, and then the stage one the stage was a mass crash at the finish line. And yeah, I went down and I cracked my collarbone. That was a challenging tour. You know, I just hung on for a while just to. I kept going. You know, I had a, like a V fracture, but luckily it was still intact. If it was fully like displaced like that, it would have been impossible or uh, impossible for me, I think. So yeah, I was still together. And the, I remember the French doctor who who's looking at the X-ray said, "Oh, you know, if he can handle the pain, maybe it's possible he continues." So I was like, "I'll take that. I'll take that." So I just kind of took it one day at a time. And 
And there was like a little bit less pressure actually for a while because it was like I had, you know, I had a crack collarbone. Everyone's gonna understand if I finish in the back or don't finish at all. But I kind of stayed in it. I kept my name in the game, and I kept. I didn't give up, I guess. But Bjorn was a great motivator. I mean, he was amazing that way. A very cool guy. He comes across as very reserved. He comes across as very calm, uh, very unflappable. Very cool in the pocket. When when things got stressful, he was you know cool as a cucumber, and that filtered down to the staff and the riders. So, you know, I really enjoyed that. The uh, photos I've seen of Bjorn Reese. I put a photo up because when he started out cycling, he had hair, he looked healthy. <laughs> and then when he won on how to camp, the guy looks fucked. I'm sorry, but like, you know, he was just shredded. He, I think he was only 30. I can't remember how old, but he looked about 50. His eyeballs are coming out of his sockets. I just thought. Yeah, you know, when people lose a lot of weight, when they get to that skeletal look at the Tour de France, that, 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 that weight that they only carry for a few weeks out of the season people look old yeah when you lose a lot of weight like that yeah you definitely look older but but as a director yeah i mean he, he was a great director he uh motivated the team and he, he thought certainly outside the box certain things like the early season kind of adventure camp you know my first activity with the new team csc in 2002 was like i flew into copenhagen from from the states then we took a bus up into sweden at night Rode a canoe across a lake, slept in a teepee for like three nights, did all this like team bonding stuff in the middle of nowhere in Sweden. It was like no one else was doing that kind of stuff. I think these days they do a lot more like team building activities, maybe in the early early season. Uh, but back then, no, no one was doing that stuff. When I watched it, you come across as a, um, and even now when I talk to you now, there's no another term we've got in the UK, airs and graces. You haven't got any kind of prima donna. You are not at all egotistical. You have no form of... And in the video in the 2003 one, when you're at your height, I was watching you and you seem like you... Um, I don't want to say rabbit in headlights, but someone who... You wouldn't say boo to a goose. You just seem so kind of... I want to say lovely. <laughs> um, friendly. You would still do anything for anyone. Has that always been your way? I think so. Yeah, my my mom and dad they always just made sure you know the conversation's not always about you, and you're always asking about others, and making sure my feet are always on on the ground, and I always look everyone in the eyes, you know, say please and thank you, and, and you're not better than anybody, not that person that's working on your bicycle, not the person that's cleaning your hotel room, whatever. We're all equal, so I've always tried to try to act that way. When you won that stage into uh, Bagnon in 2003, can you remember that? Can you, cause you put away, um, you put away Luca Paolini, who's a bit of a hero. Yeah, it was, you know, it was the last mountain stage of the 03 tour. You know, it had been an up and down tour for me, you know, before that stage, it was, it had been certainly a bit disappointing. Uh, you know, I cracked my collarbone in stage one and was, I think going into that stage, I might've been sixth or seventh overall. And yeah, I had a talk with Bjorn Reese and let's take a chance. Let's, Let's see if we can, you know, go for the stage today. And if at all, maybe make up some time in GC. You know, I'd lost some time earlier in the Pyrenees. And, and so, yeah, we went for it. Got a teammate in the break, in the early break of maybe, I don't know, six, seven riders. And then when we hit the first climb, I attacked straight at the bottom. And then my teammate, Nicky Sorensen, who was in the break, he dropped back and uh, pulled me up to the break. And then he drove the break away for a while. And then 
when the brakes started to slow down, I kind of I took off and and did the rest myself. And it was just a time trial to the finish line. So so we we had a nice lead. I think we got had five minutes, and so I had a nice advantage. And boom, you know, it was they had a hard time chasing me back. So I think I won by a couple of minutes. You know, that was a fun day. Fun day, certainly hard. But couldn't have done it without my teammate. The same individual, Nikki Sorensen, you know, he was my whole team helped me win Liege, but he was the final guy in Liege to He was pulling. Yeah, he pulled back Lance and he pulled back uh I think it was Sanchez. A dedicated teammate like that and a dedicated team that you know, without them I wouldn't have and you know, had a shot at that. Do you keep in touch with him? Do you keep in touch with any of the guys? Oh man, every once in a while I'll reach out to an old teammate or something, but you know, I live here in Missoula, Montana. It's yeah, just I'm far away from the sport at the highest level. So random teammates every once in a while. But in general, not so much. Who's like a standout friend? Who's a who are the people in the peloton who you thought, yeah, he's a funny guy. He's a, you know you know, there was someone who I wanted to talk to you about. His book's come out recently, Frank Vandenbroek. Oh no way. God rest his soul. Yeah. What was he like? You know, can you give us the insight? Because you'll have seen things that we won't have seen. We, you'll might have seen the piss taking, the the jokes. Yeah. Was he this film star, mythic man who everyone, you know, what made him so special? I mean, I think he was super confident. I mean, he had just massive, massive talent. When he was on for him, he was like almost untouchable. He had a good team around him. I remember uh, Nico Matin, the Belgian guy. They were always side by side. Nico would always take care of him as his like number one domestique and yeah incredible individual you know almost bigger than life a little bit but sad story at the end really sad there was one thing I was never bothered about was looking good I didn't really care like I look terrible on a bike yeah same here here. (laughs) (laughs) I never got these people who wanted to look good on a bike and yeah he looked pretty yeah he looked perfect on the bike you know yeah were you ever jealous of him? Were you ever like, you know, this guy just... Oh. He was hard to beat. When he was on form, he was hard to beat. So I was you know, jealous of that, that I couldn't keep up with him. But uh, in terms of the style, in terms of what he looked at on bike, yeah, I was fine looking scrappy. There's something that I like to ask people. Cycling is tough. You have to be hard. Who's the hardest guy you've raced or trained against who was just nails? And when I say nails, you know... I'm not just necessarily meaning, oh, he doesn't wear gloves when it's snowing or someone who's just fucking tough, man. There were so many riders that were tough. And honestly, all of them were tough. At that level, it's so hard. The terrain you had to race over, the conditions, the weather conditions that you had to race through. Yeah. I mean, everyone was super tough. To get there, you had to be tough. If you were too soft, you weren't going to make it 100%. That's a hard one. I don't know. I always picture Ulrich just... Because he was so strong, so tough. Yeah, and he was one of my favorite riders, for sure. Just because underneath it all, just such a nice guy with such a big heart. So, But he was tough. He was tough, tough, tough. And he looked tough, right? But, but, but you know, yeah, he's the Rottweiler. He's the big Alsatian. But, you know, you were the Jack Russell Terrier who just, whatever it is, you, you had it. You had that ability. You had that. I don't know. Like, didn't you grind your teeth down in the 2003? Did you grind them all down as yeah, I've had all sorts of teeth. I had to get my, all my teeth restructured. That was because a lot of it because I had a broken bone. So, but yeah, I did a lot of teeth grinding. So my my teeth had paid a high price for sure. Tomorrow I got to go into the, to see the dentist because of it all. Yeah. This is the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Obviously, look, the Olympics winning the town trial, you got stripped. Can you talk us through that? The highs and lows of that, like obviously representing USA. 
Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be in the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, it had been a goal of mine since since 1980. That was when I watched the Olympics for the first time. That was in Lake Placid, New York, the Winter Olympics. So I remember that winter, I think it was in February, yeah, just being glued to the television and just telling myself, like, you know, someday I'd love to, you know, represent my country and be there, be in the Olympics. And I didn't care what sport. You know, for a long time, I thought it was going to be, or hoping that it would be in ski racing, but that didn't work out. And, and then I had an opportunity in cycling and did the Sydney Olympics and then in the year 2000 and did the Athens Olympics in 04. And yeah, to win was super special, but it didn't, you know, it didn't feel the same. And I knew the truth. And so, you know, my whole life, I kind of pictured or dreamt about what it would feel like. And yeah, it didn't feel the same. Obviously, I was still excited about it, but it didn't feel exactly what I thought it would feel like. And it never really did. I thought maybe the next day I'd feel different or the day after that or the day after that. And then, yeah, I mean, I think 10 years later, I gave, gave the medal back. I came, you know, clean with, with the truth. And, you know, before they came knocking on my door, I sent it back. So and I got a nice letter from the IOC president thanking me for that and telling me how much he appreciated it. I saved that letter. And that's certainly special to me. But yeah, I mean, I don't miss it. I don't, I'm glad I went back. I'm glad I sent it back. I think that goes to show anyone listening just how much of a human being you are and just you're like, yeah, you took drugs, you know, so what you made, you know, did you make a mistake? Everyone else was doing it. I don't know. You could debate that as long as you want. No, it was a mistake. It was a mistake for sure. Does it annoy you seeing other cyclists who haven't come out and confessed who you, who have had success, you know, I'm not going to name names. Does it bother you or have you let that go? It used to for sure. For sure. It doesn't anymore. No, no. You know, we're each on our own path and, you know, we each have our own truths and whether or not you want to face them or not, you know, it's up to you. You know, there's some people that will never face them. That's fine. If that's the life you want to lead, right? But a small lie turns into a bigger lie, which turns into a bigger lie, a bigger lie. And if you're, if you're lying about this one little avenue of your life, everything else is maybe transparent. I don't, know, I don't want to tell other people what to do, but, you know, I'm happy with the path I'm on now. Obviously, Yorkshire Grit was forged out of hard times. You know, we have an aspect of people who suffer with depression and, you know, there is, there is hope, you know, grittiness and like you can get through hard times. And obviously you suffered a bit, you were down and you had a little bit of a hard time and you picked yourself back up and you seem like you're in a better place now. Yeah. I mean, you know, life's not perfect, but life is pretty good for sure. Yeah. And I feel very lucky, very lucky that, that I've had you know great friends and family around me, you know, during the difficult times for sure. But yeah. There were some yeah, heavy moments in my life and, you know, times when I had the, the heavy blanket on me. It was like, you couldn't quite get up. But yeah, I mean, like you said, like just getting up every day, kind of like dusting yourself off and like keep working hard, keeping your kind of nose to the grindstone, keep working hard and and knowing like things will get better. Things will get better, right? You're bound to be successful if you keep working hard. Having the right people around you was certainly helpful for sure, right? I mean, there are other people that went through similar situation to me that but aren't around today. That breaks my heart. And like, we got to make sure that, you know, that doesn't happen again. You know, I was really keen at one point to kind of start a petition. I was going to try and like, not a badger or a sticker. You know how you get on the team coaches, you have all the sponsorship stickers of like SRAM, Zip, you know, you have all the stickers along the big coaches. I wanted like a badger or a sticker to show that these teams cared about the mental health of athletes of cycling because cyclists are more prone than most because they're obsessive and they're addictive. I think there should be some form of the UCI needs to have a sticker or something where there is a, not a helpline as such, but. I'm glad you brought that up. Taking care of your mental health is so, so important. And I think in, in the sport of cycling and probably in a lot of other sports, it's, 
it hasn't been um, focused on so much. I think the times are changing a little bit. The firm I work for, the Black Swift Group, they started a fund recently in 2020 called the Pro Cyclist Fund. The management fees or a portion of the management fees go to the Pro Cyclist Foundation. In the Pro Cyclist Foundation, one of our big targets there is working on mental health, on the health side of pro cycling. Yep. You know, Brent Bookwalter is leading the charge there with the Pro Cyclist Foundation. He just retired last year. Yeah, it's been the, the foundation has been doing some great things. So there isn't, you know, boxing, football, there's all these charities about, you know, um, mental health, life after sport. But in cycling, I Googled, I Googled the other day, there isn't one helpline, there isn't one website, there isn't one, there isn't anything. It's bizarre. It kind of, you know, if we're so obsessed with training watts, kilos, got a coach for this, you got a coach for that, you got a, a masseuse. I'm just baffled that, I suppose, Ineos and Team Sky did it with Steve Peters to a degree. But I'm just baffled that there isn't one for cycling. It's in the works. It's certainly in the works. With the Pro Cyclist Foundation, yeah, we've done two webinars recently. The, the third one's actually tomorrow. I'll send you the link to that. Maybe Please do. There is a YouTube. So you can watch it live or you can watch it later on YouTube. I'll send you the link there. It's a work in progress. Mental health side of things and cycling hasn't been... Uh, really a big focus but like you were saying before everyone's a little bit insecure inside maybe things are going great on the road but maybe things you know back home aren't going well and they're stressed about that but they need an opportunity or an outlet to be able to be open about that they're on the road 200 plus days a year right you need the right kind of support system and like eventually you're going to run into problems you know i mean you can have two three four more or less perfect years but then you know Life gets in the way and life can be tricky sometimes, you know, you get curveballs thrown at you all the time and teams need, need some sort of coach, mental coach there. Would Marcel Kittle have quit if he had had maybe someone who wasn't an arsehole to him? Maybe, but you know, good on him for, for listening to his, his body, to his mind and good on him for like packing a suitcase and going home. And like he did it for a long time. He was top of the world and it's not forever. You don't have to do it forever. And it's like, if you're not enjoying it, really enjoying it because it's such a hard sport if you're not having at least a little bit of fun and enjoyment from it like it's not worth it so yeah i think retiring a little young isn't a bad idea you know we could talk about that for a long time and i just think there needs to be there needs to be a duty of care somewhere for these guys who to have an outlet that they're not just a machine who are going to who can compete for 200 days a year starve themselves for half the fucking year don't go to weddings don't go to parties don't drink for six fucking months in the year like i'm not being funny but you are going to crack and it is going to be spectacular. There's a good chance. But look, I need to wrap up. Thank you from the bottom, bottom, bottom of my heart. We're here in Leeds just doing this podcast. And, you know, I didn't think I'd have a, a moment where I was talking to Tyler Hamilton. You know, it just goes to show that when you speak truthfully, you speak honestly, you inspire people. And I think you get where I'm coming from. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's been nice talking to you, Tom. And uh, just hearing your voice, you know, I want you as like a meditation podcast, just to hear your voice. <laughs> hey, that's another great thing to do. It helps kind of ground you and start your day on a good note. I hope one day I meet you in person, if you're ever in the UK, if you're ever in Yorkshire, good place to ride your bike, Todd Yorkshire. Where exactly is Yorkshire? <laughs> no, no, no disrespect. I know it's north of London, right? North, north, <laughs> yeah. northwest. It's between, uh, do you know where Manchester is? More or less. Is that northwest of London? We're basically in the middle. Kind of like bang in the middle. You've got Google. Just get on Google. I'll go check it out. I'll check it out. I'm going to send you those that YouTube link. Do it. For the foundation. It's a good, great webinar. More needs to be done. We, you know, we can hook up in the future. We can maybe do more. 100%.
Yeah. And I like what you're doing. I like what you're doing. Thanks, man. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm just trying to, you know, get out there. Keep up the good work. You're a great guy. You're a great human being. And I fucking mean that. Like, so mean that you are. Today's been really special for me. And we've managed to get over the whole Zoom thing. I know there's a bit of a time lag. Thank you so much. And look, keep in touch and just go from strength to strength. Just keep doing what you're doing. Look forward to keeping in touch, Tom. Keep up the great work. I'll try not ride Paniagua anymore. Keep it Paniagua. Keep it Paniagua. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tyler. Thank you. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Subscribe now on iTunes and Spotify.